Hey, this is Sam Howells, presenter and producer of The Profile Podcast. Over the next few weeks, we're bringing you these bonus episodes where my colleague Andy Peck chats to the best and brightest experts on Christian leadership. Andy has spent 17 years conducting these brilliant conversations. We're bringing you the very best of them in these special midweek editions of The Profile Podcast. Andy Peck, over to you. Pain and struggle come to us all. They're part of life, and we hope and pray they don't last too long. Or if they do, that we can get the help that we need. And for some people, the journey through that pain becomes something that God uses in their future. Many guests on the Leadership Show have begun charities to help people in the kind of situation they were once in. And this is certainly true of today's guest, who now ministers full-time to help people facing mental health issues and especially eating disorders from which she suffered in her teen years. Her name is Hope Virgo, and she's now working uh, to help others in eating disorders, in mental health challenges, running courses, uh, writing books, and leading seminars. In 2018, she launched the Dump the Scales campaign, which called on the government to review their guidance in support of eating disorders. Her first book was Stand Tall, Little Girl, and her story was featured on BBC Breakfast, Good Morning Britain, Sky News, amongst many other media outlets. She's now the author of a new book, You Are Free, brackets, even if you don't feel like it, close brackets, Mental Health, Faith, and Finding Your Way. Welcome, Hope, to The Leadership Show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Just a little of your own journey, Hope, if you may, in in terms of writing this particular book. Yeah, so um, I I guess I I decided to write it originally. So I've had my own lived experience of uh, an eating disorder. Um, And for me, I think my faith was a massive part of it growing up and then was something that I took a like a real step back from kind of, yeah, became a bit of a backseat in my life um, when I was admitted to treatment. And a couple of years ago, I went back to church. Um, and <clears throat> during that kind of, I guess, the th- two, three years of being back in the church environment, it got me really thinking about eating disorders, particularly, but also more broadly with mental health issues and the way that the church so often responds to various issues that present people on a day to day basis. and. I know in my own experience, I was really, really hurt in the church environment. Um, and I wanted people to understand that the church can really, really hurt people, but actually that's separate from God. And so for me, it was all about, the book is all about trying to bring that freedom to people, bringing that kind of conversation that so much of the time, we don't want to talk about a lot of this stuff because it feels embarrassing and intimidating and people just kind of shy away from all of these conversations. And to just try and get people to bring this stuff out into the open, knowing that it's okay to talk about this sort of stuff, even if we don't have all the answers. And so I hope you've given up your previous work to make this a full-time thing. It's something of a campaign for you as well. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it was probably a very risky thing to do in hindsight. Um, and I remember, actually, I handed in my notice for my, like, uh, nine-to-five job about four and a half years ago. And my, I think my parents were just like, what are you doing? Like, this is ridiculous. And I was like, I'm going to take the risk and just see what happens. And the reason I did that was I'm obviously really passionate about getting people to understand about mental health issues. But I think for me, a huge part of it was that 
firstly, we have this such this negative picture of mental health, particularly with eating disorders. There's a lot of really, really stark statistics about the lack of recovery, about the high mortality rates, and all of those statistics are only getting worse as a result of the pandemic. And so kind of four and a half years ago, I was like, do you know what, I actually want to change the narrative around eating disorders, making sure that people not only reach out for support, but actually people don't just settle in these kind of midway points. And I also was getting increasingly frustrated with the fact that so much of the time, particularly with eating disorders again, but also with other mental health issues, is we just judge people based on what they look like. And particularly with eating disorders, we have these stereotypical images in our heads of what a person with an eating disorder should look like. And more often than not, a lot of us will think of that kind of white teenage emaciated girl. But actually, we know that eating disorders can present themselves in all different body sizes, all different genders, people of all different ages. And so for me, a huge part of the kind of campaigning work that I wanted to start doing was to make sure that actually people could access support regardless of what they looked like, but also to kind of tackle a lot of the shame and the stigma that is so often wrapped up with these types of illnesses. Uh, hope you've spoken in the book uh, and obviously part of your work is to talk through some of the, the detail and I, I don't want to you know go go places where I shouldn't but I do need to ask you about the the real pain of an eating disorder uh, a mental health particularly but in, an eating disorder because manifestly you face this two or three times a day I, I'm sure everyone's mental health issue is is hell for them but this is this is a particularly challenging time. And I just wonder if you can just share as best you can for people the challenge of this particular condition. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, firstly, I think you're, you're so right. It's, 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 and I think that adds to the stigma of it. With a lot of other mental health issues or a lot of other addictions, you're, you're simply told, and it's not as easy as that, but you're simply told to just cut out this thing or to not do this thing. But with food, with eating disorders, you have to find a way to bring it back into your day-to-day -day and to be comfortable doing that. And in effect... Every time you sit down for a meal, you're facing this huge fear around what that's going to look like, what's going to happen on the other side of this, what are people going to think? And it plays into a lot of those things that people think that people are just choosing to have an eating disorder or choosing to be difficult in those moments. So from a stigma perspective, it makes recovery really, really challenging in that sense. But I think like looking back over my experience, it, it was it was really interesting. So I I developed an eating disorder when I was about 12, 13 years old. And for me, the eating disorder wasn't actually about the food. It wasn't about exercise. It wasn't about my body image. It was because something was going on for me. And the eating disorder numbed a lot of these emotions, all of these things I didn't want to feel. It created this narrative in my head where I felt like maybe I'd be okay, that maybe one day if I kept doing what it wanted me to do, I'd be good enough. And it basically just took over my life for the next kind of four or five years or so. Um, eventually, as I said at the start, I was then admitted to treatment um, and kind of going into that environment where you're not even sure there's anything the matter with you, sitting down at a table where there is so much emotion around the food and having to kind of tackle that on a day-to-day -day basis. And Yes, it, it, it's those kind of three meals a day, but then you have that interspersed with snacks and you have the anticipation of the meal time. So it pretty much dominates your every single thinking on that day-to-day -day basis. And you've, once you've done the meal time, you're then sitting with all of these uncomfortable feelings, all of this fear around what's just happened, how am I going to feel? And a big thing for me was because I'd used the food to numb emotion, it then meant that as I started to kind of weight restore, 
I was beginning to feel all of these emotions that I just didn't ever want to feel. And so then I had to navigate sitting with all of that as well within kind of within the uncertainty of the food and the kind of feelings restoring as well. And I think particularly for people nowadays, um, I think obviously when I was when I was growing up, it was really challenging. But I think nowadays it's amplified on a whole other level because we've pretty much normalized this eating disorder culture where loads of people restrict, loads of people diet, people talk about calories, people obsessively exercise. And it's just the thing that people seem to be doing nowadays, which just isn't okay. But when you're then in recovery from an eating disorder and you're recovering into a world where there is so much emphasis put on your image and so much emphasis put on shrinking yourself. And when you have anorexia, you're pretty much going against that you're trying to put on the weight you're trying to normalize your eating you're trying to not have food rules it then makes you feel really really guilty pretty much every time you have anything and and I know for me like I I kind of obviously like weight restored in hospital physically I looked fine and people thought that I was doing really well but mentally I still had so much work that needed to be done and it took me probably the next five six years to actually get to a space where food was this neutral part of my day to day and when I didn't have to think about it as much but but then other things happen and then you go back to that coping mechanism and you have to constantly be kind of on your yeah I guess kind of on your toes really pushing yourself to be like actually do you know what whilst it seems tempting to go back and do that as a way to cope with life it's not actually going to solve anything I hope to us understand a little bit better um what were the kind of keys for you to health and were there a few kind of missteps along the way yeah so I think with regards to my recovery yes yeah so I think for me I I definitely had I had moments when I when I felt like I was never going to be well actually and particularly for me at the start I didn't think there was anything the matter with me and I'm sure that's something that a lot of people will be able to relate to as well like when you have an eating disorder or you're supporting someone who's got an eating disorder it takes so much for that individual to accept they need to have that support and accept that actually what they're doing isn't right um and so for me I think the first the first really big thing was even though I'd been admitted to hospital, I still was in this denial factor. And I remember on the Friday nights, I'd been in hospital for three days and was just so angry at pretty much everyone around me, hating, hating life, hating everyone was just, was just really, really angry. And, um, one of these nurses came in to see me and she got us to do this exercise where I had to draw a life-size model of myself on a massive piece of paper. So I kind of drew this version of what I thought I looked like. And then I had to lie down on that exact same piece of paper and she traced around the outside of me. I then had to stand up and kind of compare these images, the one that I'd drawn and the one that she traced. And it was in that moment that seeing these two images that were so, so different, that I had this kind of concrete evidence that something wasn't quite right with me. And I think for me, it was always, that was the real starting point of my own recovery. And it, it hasn't been a straight line. I've had moments where, it's it's felt amazing where it's felt really difficult where I've had to really assess where I'm at and I think a big thing for me was I spent a lot of my life settling at this kind of midway point and again we know statistically that only 50% of people make a full recovery and 30% of people settle in these kind of weird kind of midway points in their own journeys and so a lot of the time when you're in recovery it's about challenging those kind of settling moments 
and kind of taking the steps forward to sit with the uncertainty, to sit with the guilt around the food and to ask yourself actually what's going on? Like, what am I feeling in this moment? And I think what makes that even harder is a lot of the behaviours with a lot of addictions, but particularly with eating disorders, is they make you feel completely invincible. And I remember when I was in treatment, I used to often think that the eating disorder was this kind of superpower that took away all of this pain that I didn't want to feel. And it stopped me being part of life, yes, but it also stopped me having to face up to so much of stuff. And so when I was in treatment, actually learning to embrace that pain and seeing that on the other side of that, there was other stuff that I could do. I could go traveling, I could go to uni. A big thing for me was I really wanted to have kids one day. So it's actually kind of challenging a lot of the behavior so that I could get all of those things that I wanted without letting the eating disorder kind of prevent that from happening. Well, thank you, Hope, for sharing that in, in such detail. But so at some point you came back to faith and that became part of your ongoing journey. So how did that happen? And uh, how now with this book are you joining, if you like, some of the mental health uh, professional advice with biblical advice? Yeah, so um, so I, I left the church when I was about 17. Um, I left it when I went into treatment, pretty much. Um, I had the odd occasion where I went to church after that. But the reality was, I think I'd, I'd probably been drifting for quite a lot of my kind of childhood. Wasn't really sure what I believed. Um, I definitely was one of those people that went to church and was part of all the youth stuff because I just loved the social aspect. Um, and I was also sexually abused in the church when I was about 12 years old. And I think it was it was that that probably was the real issue that I had with the church there. And also an issue with God. It was like, how can how can this stuff happen? How can how can I develop an eating disorder because of this abuse that happened to me when it shouldn't have happened in the first place? And a big thing that often comes up with abuse as well is you're left with these feelings that there is something categorically wrong with who you are because no one stopped it. So I was sitting again with all of that kind of shame and guilt and just so much anxiety about things. Um, <clears throat> and I decided the best thing to do when I was 17 was to just not go back. Um, and if God was real, then perhaps he would have intervened, made me well, but he didn't when I was in treatment. So <clears throat> I kind of pushed back a lot of that kind of teaching. Anyway, about uh, four years, three, four years ago now, um, kind of pre-pandemic, I was struggling a lot with the abuse. Again, I'd kind of gone through a court case. There'd been a lot of trauma that had re-emerged, stuff that I'd never really tackled, if I'm honest. Um, I kind of boxed it up and just thought it was never going to catch up with me. But I honestly think quite often all of this stuff catches up with us eventually. It's just we're not always sure when. And um, I remember one afternoon, I was kind of just sitting around, not really feeling that great about things. I kind of reached out to my godmother, was feeling just really, really unsettled. And uh, she convinced me to go to church and just to kind of sit there and try it out and see what I thought about it. So I went into this church environment and I found it really, really interesting just looking at people's faces in the room, kind of looking at how people were responding and and I sat at the back, obviously didn't really want to talk to anyone. I was probably, in hindsight, quite rude to people who tried to have a conversation with me. But I just was kind of observing, kind of taking the whole thing in. Um, after that, I agreed to do an alpha course. Um, and during that, I had space to, I guess, ask a lot of those really difficult questions that I just wanted to know the answers to. Um, got really, really hung up on things around forgiveness and how can you forgive someone who's abused you when it's pretty much had this like life lasting impact on your life? 
So it kind of had all of those questions that I had to really unpack. Um, but it was during that time, actually, that I gradually began to think, actually, that there is there is something in this. And so I decided to re-become a Christian, um, which was probably one of the hardest things, but probably of also the, one of the best things I've, I've done in my life. Um, I think I still I still had a lot of questions and there were still things that really, really frustrated me. I, I still don't know why I was never healed. Um, I still don't know why certain things have happened to me and why there haven't been consequences. But a lot of it for me has been about learning to kind of trust that actually things will just work themselves out. And <clears throat> I think for me, it's been really interesting, particularly with my own experience and with the work that I do, is whilst I don't just talk about faith and mental health issues, I talk kind of much more broadly about mental health and eating disorders and exercise addiction. I do think that actually there is so much kind of power when we do start to look at how we can bring the Bible into our day to day. And I know personally for me, actually just even over the last kind of, I don't know, year or so with living through the pandemic, like facing loads of other stuff that's going on in life, actually having that kind of stable kind of rock part of my life through doing Bible studies, through listening to music always has really, really helped actually during that time. And I think additionally to that, when I mentioned with kind of abuse that you often feel like there's something wrong with you, but I don't think it's just abuse that makes people feel like that. I think it's so much of the time in life. It's, you don't see yourself presented on social media or someone makes a comment to you or you get some bad feedback or you get a comparison to someone maybe. And particularly for young people, that kind of constant comparison and judgment is always going on. So you often, there's so many people out there who are sitting with these feelings that there's something wrong with them, they have to change that. And so a big thing for me and something that I do talk about in the book actually, is actually trying to shift a lot of those narratives that we're telling ourselves and actually find other ways to deal with them. And so for me, where dealing with them is to kind of recite affirmations over myself and to tell myself all of those things when I'm lying in bed that I've read in the Bible that day, kind of those positive things and and kind of cheerleading myself with God on side, if that makes sense. Well, hopes. thank you for sharing. I'm so sad <laughs> to hear the story, but bless you for the way God's brought you through. And, um, and thank you. Some people, uh, some Christians, of course, will, uh, if they came across someone like yourself, they would be, you know, comfortable laying hands on you and asking for prayer in Jesus' name for healing. Uh, others would probably run a mile, in fairness, um, and some even, you know, who'd be youth and children's workers, be very nervous about touching on any anything like mental health or eating disorder or whatever. And of course, if if you're a parent, even if you sense that there's a problem, you still have. A waiting list, you know, NHS, unless you can go private. Um, so, what would you say to people who, on the one hand, maybe are happy praying, and the other, on the other hand, are very nervous? Uh, yeah, no, and I think I think it's I think it's really hard at the moment with all of this. Firstly, I, I guess I just want to acknowledge that I am aware a lot of the campaigning work I do is around the waiting times for mental health issues. And particularly for eating disorders, we know that services are so massively overstretched right now that a lot of people are just unable to access any kind of support. And you're kind of sitting in this interim factor where you want, yeah, where you don't know what to do or where the, where the carers or loved ones are kind of expected to be this kind of psychiatrist to support that person. And I think the first thing for everyone is that you don't have to be an expert to talk about this sort of stuff. Your job as carers or your job as a youth worker or as someone who wants to pray for someone, it's, it's not to fix that person. It's not about saying all the right things. 
it's about bringing these conversations out into the open. And I believe the only way that people can heal and recover is if we bring the behaviors, the feelings, the emotions out into the light. And once we start doing that, that's when people start to make that progress kind of moving forward. I think particularly when you're praying with someone, it's it's really, really, <clears throat> it's really, really important. Obviously, do do it. But I think firstly, don't always pray for them to be healed, perhaps unless they specifically want that. I honestly think I've been so frustrated the amount of times that I've gone up for prayer and people have assumed that I want prayer for healing. And actually, sometimes I don't. I want prayer for something completely unrelated. So it's important to remember, I think, that the, the mental health issue, whatever it is, isn't that entire person's identity. But actually, there's so much more to them than that. So yes, pray about it if that's what they want. Be bold. Kind of take those steps forward. But actually, if if that person comes up for lots of prayer, maybe ask them each time, what do you want prayer for? What, like, what would be helpful? Is there something specific in your recovery journey? Is there something specific work-related that I could be praying for? So kind of ask asking those questions and I think again like I said kind of being bold bringing them out into the open and and being direct with people I think so often we are scared of triggering people we're scared of causing upset but if we don't talk about this sort of stuff people are going to continue to suffer in silence on their own and we can't have that because then people won't ever get well so it is about just being direct where we feel like we can and if you've got people that you feel a bit unsure about about being direct Maybe it's like asking someone else to have that direct conversation with them. Again, like finding other avenues that you can explore. I was interested in the book, Hope, that you come against the victim mentality. And uh, I think those outside the mental health situation perhaps wouldn't be as bold as you were, you know, within it to say those things. But Yeah. And, you know, I actually found <laughs> I actually wasn't sure if I was going to leave that chapter in the book. Um, cause it felt slightly whether, yeah, it felt like I was being slightly uncomfortable talking about it. I don't know, but I think it, I think it's really, really important. And I think the reason I think that is because I think so much of the time, whether it's in a church environment or whether it's kind of broadly in society or communities, we kind of put people in this little box and they stay in that box and we empathize with them all the time, which is obviously empathy is really, really important, but actually we want that person to fulfill their destiny. And sometimes in order to fulfill our destinies, I believe that we have to have conversations with people that maybe make them feel slightly uncomfortable and then we'll kind of get them to actually think about it. And in the book I talked, I talk about um, one of my friends, Lauren, who asked me whether I really wanted to be well. And it was one of the hardest questions I think I've ever been asked. It was such a direct question that it completely caught me off guard. But actually there's moments when I wasn't sure I did want to be well. I was, I was desperate to be healed. But firstly, I didn't really want to do the work to get there. And secondly, I wasn't sure if I did because I was so afraid of what was going to be on the other side. What would what would I look like? What would my body look like? What would people think of me? What would my identity be without having this illness? And I think so much of the time we kind of can wallow in these phases of victimhood. And yes, it's a mental health issue, which so we're not choosing to be that way. But I do believe that actually there is some element of choice somewhere along the lines in recovery. And sometimes it is about choosing to sit with that uncertainty and that discomfort and to kind of that will sitting in that space will then push us a little bit further forward as well. But I do just want to emphasize, I make it sound really easy and it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure. No, fair enough. And, And Hope, it was lovely to see how much scripture and biblical principles were in the book and some of the activities that you suggest for people. So it's a enormously helpful i suppose i just need to to, to ask you uh, again some christians insist on having christian therapy 
others are, are less easy, you know, are, are more relaxed about just the fact that someone needs, understands the mental health process is enough. What's your view on whether someone should find a Christian therapist or not? I don't think it's necessary. Um, so I've never actually had Christian therapy. Um, I think that God gives people um, regardless of what their faith personally, and it's about finding the right therapist that works for you. And I think sometimes in a church environment, if you feel like you can't be honest with your therapist because they're a Christian, then I would probably kind of check in and actually say maybe it's worth seeing someone who's outside of the church environment so you can have more of an honest conversation with them about things. Well, finally, Hope, is there anything I haven't asked you think, actually, I need to get this across to people? Um, I guess I guess my I guess something that's re really important to me is that with mental health issues and eating disorders as well is they're not always visible. And I guess just that reminder that you might have people who are struggling around you, struggling in your communities, in your families. And just because they look OK doesn't mean they are OK. So just being really, really mindful of that and being really mindful of the kinds of conversations that potentially you're having around them as well. So you're not triggering certain emotions. Well, Hope, thank you so much for, for sharing and for doing so, so matter of factly almost, because we've touched on some very powerful and what must have been very tough times. So thank you so much. No, thanks so much for having me. So that's uh, Hope Virgo and her book is... Uh, you are free, brackets, even if you don't feel like it, mental health, faith, and finding your way. That was my conversation with Hope Virgo. I think you'll agree it was a very moving story, and I trust this conversation will be of help to you as you seek to be a blessing to those you know, perhaps in the church or workplace, who face mental health issues. Hope encouraged us to have courage to be bold in being prepared to talk and she believes that openness is crucial if we're to find healing in this area. So, of course, we go carefully and sensitively, but we seek to be of help and support if people are struggling. If you've been affected yourself by anything you've heard on this show, do please find someone to talk to. And, of course, Premier's Lifeline have people skilled at listening and praying. You can call them even this afternoon. 0300 111 0101. They can point you towards specialist help if you feel you may need some help with a mental health condition or struggle with an eating disorder. There is, of course, no shame if we struggle in these areas. And God meets us in our need and pain, and like hope in time, can bring us out the other end. Hope's story, though, sad, is, of course, part of the narrative for many. And who knows, it may be that God is looking to use your pain to be a blessing to others, either perhaps one-on-one -on -one or perhaps part of a group. And who knows, you may end up uh, leading it. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, reminded us of the way in which God meets us in our need. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4. So may God help you in this week ahead to be that carer for others. And may God bless your efforts in his name 
as you seek to lead and use your influence for good. This is Andy Peck thanking you for your company. Bye for now. Thank you, Andy, for bringing us that great interview this week on the Profile Podcast. This show is brought to you by the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you enjoyed this episode, you are sure to love the magazine, which features news, analysis, opinion on all that God is doing in the UK church and beyond. Check out brand new articles published every day on the biggest issues facing the church and the world at premierchristianity.com. We'll be back on Friday with another in-depth conversation with a leading Christian right here on the Profile Podcast. Join us then.